most frustrating is money will come to the city or to the region and it ends up going back to central government because no one can work out how to spend it you'll end up getting like these large vanity projects that have almost like a blank check room for them whereas like community center that just might need a lift it just becomes a massive barrier and i don't know why it's so difficult to just say so rather than it going back let's spend 10 million quid on community assets within the city to bring them up to standard help them be covid secure help them to make accessibility improvements you could literally make 20 30 40 buildings in this city sing I'm Neil Maggs and welcome to Season 2 of Bristol Unpacked. I'm talking to fascinating characters with challenging topics, changing the city. With the second lockdown, live venues have been thrown into even more jeopardy. So I wanted to speak to Emma Harvey, the head of the Trinity Centre in Easton, to hear how they are doing. I used to go to the Trinity Club in, in my youth and the place plays a real strong role in the heart of the city. It's art and it's community and it's culture. So this should be a fascinating conversation. Emma, how you doing? All right. You're excited. This is your first ever podcast, isn't it? I know. It's so exciting. I'm coming into the future. Yeah, you're not an online person, you tell me. No, not really. Lockdown has definitely taught me that I'm a real world kind of gal. <laughs> yeah, what, you, you, are you itching to get back out there? Absolutely. I had a little mad month in October where we managed to get out and about and do a little bit of stuff. And now I'm back in my bedroom. Yeah, well, we talk two days in into lockdown two, aren't we now? <laughs> I feel like yeah. it's longer than that, which is scary. I know, I know. And your, your role, you work at Trinity. How long have yeah. you been involved with Trinity? I've been there since 2007. Wow. I know. You get less for murder. I've got a bit of a history with Trinity. I used to go to all the club nights there many moons ago. It was my favourite club, actually, back oh, then. Yeah, there you go. It's got a kind of spit and sawdust to yeah. it without being too much uh, spit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some messy nights in Trinity. But it's kind of evolved since when I, I only kind of really knew it as a club venue, but it's become a kind of complete community centre, all singing and dancing kind of venue now, isn't it? Doing lots of things. All stuff, yeah. All stuff to all sorts of people. It's a bit of everything. Well, and in terms of you personally, you're you're from Bristol. You, you've been in Bristol for a certain amount of time. Um, I've been in Bristol since 2007. And I came from Essex. I'm from Harlow in Essex. You get People get stereotyped from Essex a bit, don't they? A little sometimes. bit, yeah. I haven't got my heels on at the moment. Let's Jump straight in. I think that the obvious thing to jump into is COVID and lockdown and its impact upon nightlife venues in the city. Yeah. As we said, we're coming into lockdown too. Have you been frantically changing things, sorting things out all last week to sort of prepare or is it just a case of you just shut it down? Yeah, a little bit of that, a little bit of just shutting it all down again. So we had some sessions that we were doing in our little garden, tent sessions. Trinity Garden sessions and we had really packed October and then we had a full lineup ready to go for November so we had to move all that so we've just kind of postponed it all until sort of spring next year hopefully by then we might be is that annoying if you because what you had it all lined up yeah it's a little bit frustrating yeah it's a bit frustrating but then it's sort of like what can you do eh? you've just got to kind of go with Mm. it and sort of knew it was coming just didn't know quite when it was going to be and I thought we might get a couple of weeks into November before they shut it down but you know 
it's been good. It's been it's been a really good experience actually doing the sessions in the garden. They've been pretty magical. So what kind of things have you been doing there? What you mean the new social distancing type? Yeah, kind so of event, we yeah? sort of done some sessions with Waldo's Gift. We had like Young Echo yeah. doing some stuff. We had a really smashing night with Booty Bass, which was just so good, cool. and it was like pretty much impossible to stay <laughs> yeah. sat down. It is a bit of a weird concept, isn't it? Sort of sat down quietly around the table watching, yeah. like, particularly if it's kind of dance music. It, it must, I haven't been out. I've avoided it because of that. I just think I would just jump up. No, I just sort of took the chair dancing to like its extremes of like, as long as I kind of had, you know, like when you're climbing, you're supposed to keep like three points onto yeah. the rocks. Right. As long as I've got three points of contact on the chair, then I'm still technically sat on the chair. Okay. And did most people adhere to it? I I was probably the worst one, yeah. Uh, Most people were really well behaved. I was so excited because I sort of felt like it was proper imminent that we're going to have like lockdown too. So I went a bit bananas. I think like my poor duty manager was looking at me like, yeah, everyone's (laughs) been really well behaved apart from you. (laughs) Get out. You were not leading by example then. I know. I try my hardest, but I'm really like not very good at following rules, even when they're my own rules. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same, I'm the same yeah. to be honest. That's why I kind of avoid it. I've done a couple of the pub the pub yeah. things, which is a bit weird because, you know, put your mask on, go to the toilet, come back, order, <laughs> use your phone. It's all, yeah, it's too much, yeah. too much multitasking. Too many, too many stages, too many things to Yeah. Do. There was an incident, I think, at Blue Mountain when I think somebody somebody did get up oh. um, and walk across to the DJ booth yeah. and, and the bankers grabbed him and threw him out. But it was actually oh, yeah. somebody that was part of the DJ collective. And the doormen, I think, gallantly thought they were kind of doing their job. And then the guy couldn't come yeah. on to DJ because he'd gone home, I think. Something oh, like that. I guess it's really difficult because it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to kind of sympathise with the door staff's perspective, you know, like they've got yeah. the really sort of short end of the stick. You know, it's not like really my rules or like Trinity's rules or Blue Mountain's rules. This is like national yeah. rules that like, you know, and actually if somebody got spotted for breaking those rules and the security didn't enforce it then like that venue could be fine it's just a bit crappy for everyone so it's like I I guess it's sort of you know you got to kind of try and maybe police with a slightly softer hand than just like chucking people out because I think people just like you just do things automatically without even thinking about it I think the hardest thing I've noticed at the end of a set People just start clapping and whooping. and You know, you've told people not to, like, sing along, not to cheer and whatever. But it's just at the end of, like, a night, it's almost impossible, I think, when people have enjoyed themselves to not just automatically start, like, clapping and whooping. Particularly, as I said, you know, anything that's a little bit more upbeat. I think probably jazz fans are probably coping with this quite well, don't you? Yeah, I reckon, yeah. Like, people have been so starved of amazing experiences, like no festivals and everything like that. And actually, that's what for me it was just really good I mean I'm totally picking up my own venue at the moment just because it's, it's just been really nice it's like finding a little secret spot in a festival and you feel like you've got a little bit of magic and you just go a bit bananas sure and it's it's been tough I imagine for I reckon anybody I don't know under under a certain age I mean I'm I'm of an age yeah. now where I can kind of take it or leave it but if yeah. I think back now to maybe in my mid-20s yeah maybe even late 20s or or, or younger not being able to go out and party would have been really, really difficult because we used to do it every single weekend. Yeah. I would ask you what you think about this. There's obviously been quite a lot of 
I would say negativity a bit in, in the press. And there's been videos on social media of young people out celebrating, you know, breaking social distance rules yeah, when sure. the clubs and when the pubs shut. What's your take on that? Do you think that's irresponsible or do you think we need to kind of cut a little bit of slack? I, I don't I know. I think like it's easy to kind of scapegoat people. And I think, yeah, if I was 25 and someone was like, there's some party happening here let's go be like yeah I'd probably be there I'd be going and you know I'd probably put a mask on I'd try and social distance but would I not go to like a party or a festival I'd probably go you know you only live once maybe if you are a bit younger a bit more hedonistic everyone is just making their own choices and making their own calculate is it also because it's quite a distant connection if you're younger to coronavirus maybe, though, because it doesn't yeah. maybe affect you directly yeah, and perhaps you know, even with the students I think that because obviously they wouldn't necessarily have older relatives in the city would they yeah maybe not I just kind of just think it's like it's just everyone's making their own choices and like you know but is that not the point though people shouldn't be making their own choices we, we should be the, the argument is we should all be adhering to a certain set of limitations yeah you know we're fallible creatures you know and we are all making our own choices and adhering to the rules as best we can and I've seen some right shockers in the supermarket yeah. just in the queue in the shops the other day this woman had her mask on took her mask off sneezed everywhere then put her mask back on I'm like, right. mate, come on. This is like basic. So young people are kind of like an easy scapegoat. Hospitality sector, easy to shut down. But actually where you're looking at where cases are primarily popping up, it is in care homes, it is in schools. And those things, they're kind of impossible really shut down. It's all about little incremental wins. So it's like if you can get control of stuff by locking down hospitality, which is sort of like a relatively easy thing to shut down, it's not necessarily going to stop the transmission, but it'll bring it down that little bit more. Most of the people are trying to do their best, and I don't think most people want to cause harm to other people, but at the same time, it's balancing that choice between having a life yourself. And I reckon it's a shit stick at the moment for students. You know, you're, pe- you're spunking like nine grand a year plus your accommodation, which is super expensive now. And you're getting like online tutoring that I might as well sign up to open university course for. And stuck in your room with nothing to do. Mate, if I was stuck in my halls of residence in Loughborough and someone was like, come to this boss party, I'd be like, there, straight away. There's no way I would say, no, I'm stuck in my halls. Bye. Yeah. So you don't don't think it's selfish behaviour? It probably is selfish, yeah. But, like, (laughs) human beings are selfish. We're all selfish, fallible things. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, would somebody want to directly cause some harm to somebody else? Probably not, but would, you know, like I said, people making these crazy choices every day. I saw another crazy guy where this was like proper like lockdown number one. And he's like driving down the street, rubber gloves on, mask on his mobile phone while driving. I'm like, dude, you've got like all the PPE on in your own car on your own. And you're doing probably one of the most dangerous things you can be doing, chatting on your phone. It's that cognitive dissonance, isn't it? You know, you you make your choices in order Mm -hmm. to just see your way through your own day there's a difference i think between something spilling out onto the streets we saw that on the weekend in, in bristol city center after the pubs mm. close yeah. you know or or the last night of lockdown yeah. too where people are letting their hair down yeah is there a difference between that and organizing and i say this as somebody who was very much involved in this scene in my late teens early 20 organizing a, a massive illegal rave in yate again i just think there's always going to be illegal raves there's always been illegal raves that's just it will just happen there's no you're not gonna 
But you, you don't know. think it should be suspended for this time now, though? There should be more consideration. <laughs> yeah, but the legal rave, it's it's legal. Like, I mean, like, it, like I'm. Would I put a rave on? No, of course I wouldn't. Like, we're a licensed venue. But like, I don't mean in general. I, I mean more the moral, the moral stance. Like in this period we're in, yeah. I guess I just again I just kind of get back to like you. You got kind of one life, and who who am I to say what's morally? I think you know one of the big mistakes that we're making as a species right now is our rush to moral superiority, and it just gets us nowhere. Like it, mm-hmm. it polarizes everybody on social media it polarizes people it divides communities if we want unity well it, as i said i think it is, yeah, it is difficult it, make that choice myself but i can see why someone else would make that choice sure and i think i think you know anyone can appreciate it is difficult let, let me let me just drill on to the the students stuff because yeah. i think that's interesting you would probably get i would imagine students go into to trinity as as other kind of venues in the city yeah. would um students are now back yeah. It must be very difficult if you come from an, in another city. Yeah, you're you're in student life, not to go out. Yeah. However, it does seem to be, you know, seem to be. I, I stress mm. that 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 seems to have kick started the kind of R rate increasing a bit in Bristol. Obviously, students coming in for the sort of four corners yeah. of the country in areas where where there was quite a high infection rate sure. coming into the city. Yeah. Should. Bristol University and UWE have allowed the students to continue online like schools did before that's my first question and the second question I guess is related to before really is that can they be expected and would they be expected to socially isolate when you're 19 20 and away from home and you know uh, free-spirited and all that kind of stuff yeah, I guess, well, like, you know, disclaimer, I'm not a virologist, so I don't know, like, what causes COVID spikes. You know, yeah. I only know what I'm told. Um, I would say it coincides with schools going back as well. So I think it's really hard to kind of pinpoint and say it's definitely students. I'd want somebody who was a, more of a scientist than me to tell me that that was what was the cause. Well, there has been, you know, you know I mean? high cases in the halls of residence. That sure, is a reported sure. fact. That yeah, in, I guess. In, uh, yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I mean, like I said, I think students are getting a really rough deal at the moment. Essentially, you're buying a product, you're buying a degree that you, you're you not getting what you're paying for. So I think universities should be basically refunding students en masse I mean, I would just be taking this year off if if I was a student and I knew that this was going to happen. I would definitely be thinking, right, let's just work for a year and maybe go back to uni at some point. Why do you think they want the students to come back, the institutions? Well, oh, well, the dollar, obviously, I would say, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got a massive institution, big old hungry mouth to feed. How would realistically uni, I suppose, survive without that influx of students? Getting back to the rave thing, which is generally just going to be set up by a bunch of people who own a sound system, I'd say there's more of a moral imperative on an institution to act responsibly than there is on the individual. Like Trinity's got a moral obligation to act in a certain way because we're an institution. We have, you know, a set of stakeholders that we're responsible for. And I would say that similarly with the universities, you know, even if you want to treat them like customers, you've got a set of customers that you're responsible for. And are you providing a good service? I would say no. I'm not yeah. getting that tutor contact time. I mean, I did a fine art degree. How anyone's doing an art degree right now when you can't even get into studio space? I don't even know. <laughs> Perhaps the institutions themselves can take a bit of responsibility and cut a little bit of slack for the students. So, and, and let me kind of broaden that out to mm. an entertainment itself: music, mm. dance, culture in in the middle of a pandemic. Because yeah. 
I think that one of the kind of key things that's come out from this is the financial package for a lot of freelance yeah. uh, people, which often work in that in that sector, yeah. hasn't been as great as people that are kind of employed. Yeah. We, I think it was a chancellor, Rishi, that came out and said, well, maybe these people need to retrain a- away f- from the kind of arts. Yeah. Uh, so my question to you is that in the middle of a pandemic, is the arts really important or actually is it just a luxury that we can do without whilst we're in this period? Depends on what quality of life you want to have. Like, do we need art to live no we only need food and water and shelter but you know we're not talking about that are we we're all sat with our computers and our netflix and our books and our films and we've been drawing on cave walls before we could even speak so it always confuses me like when art becomes something that can be sacrificed because it's just been something that's been so constant throughout humanity what was your reaction when you heard that being suggested? Because really the implication of his statement was that actually it's not that crucial, really, is it? I think if he actually thought through what he was saying and he didn't have to speak in order to kind of make a economic point, then I think he would probably reconsider a world without any sort of cultural... I mean, it's just not even plausible. Like, humanity is culture you know that that's what sets us apart from monkeys you know but i don't know in the middle of a war or in the middle of yeah. a famine or in the middle of a pandemic when people's kind of lives are at risk people are living right on the edge it's still crucial it for you in a time where you actually need that sense of connecting with each other and a sense of purpose in life if your only purpose in life is just to exist arguably more important now Art is a way that people can express themselves about difficult things. You know, in a difficult time, surely that feels a bit more important. It's like saying religion doesn't have a purpose in difficult times. I'd say people probably turn to religion in difficult times more than they do in good times. And I think very similar to that, you know, in a lot of ways that people find themselves and find a sense of comfort in in that creative expression and I don't think that's something you could just factor out of life through an economic policy. In art in general in Bristol yeah uh, well not just in Bristol anywhere but particularly in Bristol is it a bit of a middle class bubble? Do you mean like institutions or do you mean? Well well, well, both at a kind of sort of micro and macro level really I guess as as individual within a kind of working class culture art itself you talk about how important that is is it that important to working class communities in bristol book that's out at the moment this guy that's written his name's dave o'brien and it's called culture's bad for you and it's all about that you know how like arts organizations generally tend to get kind of run by the middle classes and funding decisions tend to get made by those same people there's a sort of funded model of art that potentially favors certain types of art that doesn't necessarily appeal to working class communities maybe in the same way and this is like proper generalization because probably my partner he probably listens to more classic fm than me and he's not in the arts i just got to pause that conversation for a second ah the sound of silence without people like you chipping in this podcast and the rest of bristol cables work won't happen and will be silenced. So, we don't have corporate advertising, but we do have 2,200 people in Bristol who put in a couple of quid a month by becoming members of The Cable, which makes this new model of journalism in Bristol possible. So if you're enjoying this, please join us today. 
would you say that some of the arts institutions and organizations that attract more funding that know how to kind of play that game a bit more are better positioned than some of the more grassroots organizations in the city i noticed that you did you tweeted uh, about bristol beacon saying congratulations this was great when the, that was the colson hall when it changed its name and you did speak about the yeah. real need in the city to redirect focus and funds to cultural centers more grassroots community centers is the implication that you feel that doesn't happen enough in, in the city i never understand why parity is such a complicated process you know hats off to beacon that we've got their capital projects mm. on the way and team worked really hard and that but there's a huge amount of capital investment going into one central arts institution and the same conversations get had year on year. I had the same conversations with George Ferguson when he was in, before there was even an elected mayor with, with Marvin, now he's in. And it, it still, you're not seeing any of that capital investment trickle down to community centres within the city that underpin a lot of that cultural experience within communities. I just don't understand why that is. There's, there's money there. There's money for the region. And that's what's the most frustrating is money will come to the city or to the region and it ends up going back to central government because no one can work out how to spend it. You'll end up getting like these large vanity projects that have almost like a blank check room for them because they're easy to say yes to because they've got the institution, they've got the all of the feasibility study there, they've got all the architectural studies yeah. and everything. It's all like really easy to say yes to. Whereas like a community centre that just might need a lift, it just becomes a massive barrier. And I don't know why it's so difficult to just say X amount of money from Wecker, say, for this region, and X amount of it potentially might go back to central government in March if it doesn't get spent. So rather than it going back, let's spend 10 million quid on community assets within the city, within the council's own portfolio, so buildings that the council owns, to bring them up to standard, help them be COVID secure, help them to make accessibility improvements you know half a million quid max each grant you know grants are between 100k to 500k you could literally make 20 30 40 buildings in this yeah. city sing through that investment there are people from certain yeah. sectors of the city that are in yeah. dominant positions decision making positions they don't always have the real lived understanding or connected mm. traction to those wider communities in the city you know and i think that's largely because mm you know, those people don't just don't, don't quite know where to go. Or as you say, it's an easy, quick win to go with the big, shiny organisation with, you know, they know how to write funding bids, they've got everything in place. And it takes a bit more effort to reach out to areas like Knoll West, Hartcliffe, Southmead, you know, even some of the inner city places, St. Paul's and Easton, etc. Mm. But we, now, we do now have a mayor and a leader in the city yeah. and a team around him that, that should know this because they come from those areas. But mm. I, 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 and I think some people are a bit disappointed sure. that actually that, that hasn't dripped across as much as we expected. Mm. Yeah, it is, it's frustrating. I, I don't know why things are so difficult. I mean, just, yeah, I just think maybe it's just fear of, like, putting your neck out. I guess it's that thing about pressures from different angles maybe and you know there's always this kind of overarching prior to lockdown the kind of austerity pressure that I'm sure will rear its ugly head once lockdown is over again um, and so then it it leads to this short terminism of decision making where it's much easier to dispose of an asset you know Cable did a really good piece with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism yeah. around the assets that have been sold off from different local authorities and Bristol was one of the kind of key culprits in that. And, you know, just this sort of short-sighted kind of like, let's sort of 
get rid of the assets that we've got now or, or kind of let them run down, dilapidate, and then we can make more of an excuse to bin them off rather than kind of thinking about that yeah. kind of long-term gain. Of- you think, you're right, but if you, if you look at some of the big arts institutions in the city and you look at when they've had arts council funding, lottery funding, direct funding from the council, you know, if you look at the small print, there is an awful lot of stuff in there about reaching out connecting diversity connecting with different communities so it's often written as part of a kind of bid and it's always you know my, my background is in community development and sport mm. development for a while where often money would go into what i would call hubs um right. when there might be smaller venues around the city mm. that could just directly have that money and do it directly rather than it having to be some kind of outreach project from a big city center institution thinking it's not i guess it's top down not bottom up yeah it's just been a really difficult thing I think for people to make a really strong case for localism even where there's sort of evidence that it works because I guess it's so bitty and that you know there is still a greater risk that say if I invest half a million quid in 50 community buildings across the city you know I potentially 20% of those might fail and 20% might not achieve what they said that they set out to achieve because like you said they haven't got the infrastructure there they haven't got the potentially the governance and the management there they haven't got the skills within the team potentially to be able to administrate that money effectively whereas I guess you sort of see that that risk is sort of slightly diminished within a larger more accountable body but you know even with vaccine that hasn't worked you know you you stick a load of money into a massive quango and you wonder why not the vaccine sorry the um, what's it called track and trace a lot yeah. of money in one thing because you think well, it's a, a good deal but I kind of think there's a sort of false sense of security around an institution yeah, I agree. and also a false sense of security around the whole sort of consultancy industry as well I think that uh, that people are kind of brought in to yeah. uh, make decisions from often from outside communities that, that the knowledge yeah. is already there you've just got to talk to the right people sure. and that, that's the more alarming thing yeah. for me is that how really kind of local and community-led is some of the kind of strategy in the city. And I think from the, mm. and that's what pretty my ears up was really you tweeting that. Cause that's my instinct is, you know, as great as the, as the beacon center, the Colston hall, as, as it was is. And some of these other institutions, I know full well from sure. where I grew up and who I know. And, you know, I've, I'm a journalist now, but most of my friends aren't, most of my friends are going to completely different kind of yeah. aren't in this little bubble. Um, that they, they don't go to places like, the Wiltshire they don't go to places like the Arnold Fiend. they don't go to the yeah. Beacon Centre they'll go to the to the place places close to where they are or they'll go in town it's like they, it doesn't offer for them um and yeah. I, I don't and when I raise this people think it's being chippy yeah. or it's kind of been you know disruptive for the sake of it and actually it's not it, yeah, it's, sure. it's founded in actually how really yeah. accessible and fair are we and all the data in Bristol demonstrates yeah. that it's a city of disparity and I think some of this stuff is why that is like I said, I don't know, mate, because the money's there. Like you said, I think that the will from the top is there to manifest some sort of alternative solution. Labour's even got a strategy. You know, Labour has got Land yeah. for the Many by George Monbiot, which is really clear about how yeah. community assets should be being utilised and how, you know, power should be being devolved into local communities to be able to have control of those assets, to be able to kind of manifest their own solutions. So, I mean, all the components are there um it's you know there's some sort of missing bit of alchemy and I'm not sure what it is even the the community asset transfer 
which I think is a is a great idea. It's yeah. a great strategy to you know empty buildings that are not going anywhere to put them out yeah. to local groups and local communities. But in my experience, and I, you know I've been in this game some, some time, and yeah. there are a handful of, exa- of examples that are you know things like Empire Fighting Chance spring to mind, or there's there's a boxing club in Noel West Schemers mm-hmm. Boxing Club, just just in in the sport world. Mm-hmm. But the majority have gone out to organisations that aren't actually from that community. Yeah. The very reason is because it's easier to manage sure. that contract or manage that tender if you're in the council, if you're going to get the stats back, you're going to get sure. the returns, exactly, you're going to get yeah. data, data, yeah. which you might not. But surely there has to be a role for for this to be sustainable yeah. where people are supporting and upskilling individuals and organisations in yeah. those communities to be able yeah. to, to do that themselves. I agree. Yeah. I mean, like, so Trinity, I suppose we were one of the original community asset transfers on the policy as it stands now. And the organisation as it was that started the Save Trinity campaign in like 2002, and they managed to get the building in 2003. And they ended up having short leases for like two years in a row, just rolling, rolling, rolling. There's no way if that organisation constituted today and the building was up for community asset transfer, that organisation would not get a look in for that building. This wouldn't and I think again it's just people have got so risk averse like look at what's happened with Jacobs Wells Baths classic example you know there was a potential there for that to continue to be a, an amazing dance centre it housed like 40 odd dance groups it ended up going to a London-based charity that promised to do the repairs within a certain period of time the bank balance all looked good you know has that work happened no because there's no there's no drive there's no passion behind that it's just it's just profit and and I think that's the bit you kind of miss if you just make decisions based on spreadsheets is who's really got the almost you have to have a level of insanity to take on a a listed building to try and make that work and be viable as some sort of community cultural asset and if it's all about just numbers on a spreadsheet and you don't have that kind of drive for somebody to be- you have to be passionate and care about the local area in which you're operating otherwise you wouldn't go through all that would you yeah, yeah. you've got to, you've got yeah. to have that level of like yeah. you know I'm going to turn up and I'm going to open the building at six and I'm still going to be there at like four when the event's finishing you know there's th- there's that kind of like level of insanity that does not come from yeah. these larger institutions how do we strike a balance then Emma because I think that this is applicable to different sectors across the city. And I think it's really relevant now because of austerity and what's coming further down the track post-COVID. Real danger, I think, that if we don't get this right, that sticking plaster approach is going to become the norm. So I yeah. guess, how can we find a middle balance between it being authentically community-led, but yeah. also being robust in its systems? How can yeah. we do that? It's almost like go big or go home. You Rather than just trying to get one community building to work and then be worried if that's going to fail... You do a big push all at the same time, making that decision, knowing that maybe 20, 30 percent might not work. And you accept that at the beginning and you just need a brave leader and brave leadership team that is going to put that out, knowing that some of those things are going to fail for the wider win that will be the things that succeed within that mix. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we're all culpable for that. You know, any t- anyone who does a pylon on Twitter, you know, you're culpable for yeah. this. You know, you, you make it so impossible to How do you mean? How get do you mean? it wrong. It reminds me of that scene on that movie Airplane where, 
get one person disagree and then there's a whole queue of people with like baseball bats and things to slap you with and, you know, <laughs> yeah i know what you mean yeah they, they're queuing up yeah yeah, yeah, queuing queuing up, yeah. another slap in the face yeah okay understand i think maybe that creates that risk aversion because if you know you try and do something a bit creative and a bit innovative yeah. and different that may fail you know you're you know you're going to get that pile on so you yeah you're right you probably yeah. need to give people a bit of space to make mistakes but I, the wider point around taking a risk genuinely trying to put faith in real community groups I reckon it's possible I think you know what's happened with Covid has at least sort of shown that everybody's in a level of precariousness some of the community organizations have pivoted and done a bit better than some of the bigger institutions that have maybe struggled because they're just so big it's like how do you turn a massive titanic thing around in terms of staff and things and yeah yeah yeah. it's just a bigger beast to kind of like you know trying to adapt what about some of the big organizations that, that hold a lot of capital and a lot of money like merchant ventures or similar organizations in the city should they be stepping up now for some of these smaller organizations that might be struggling I think oh, it's difficult, isn't it? It's a big question, that. It, any institution that holds too much power is dangerous. Whether or not that power is held responsibly or not is a dangerous thing, you know. Do they hold too much power in Bristol, Merchant Ventures, for you? I think, Like I said, I think anyone who holds that much power to to have a conversation about something, say, for example, like Colston, to en- enable that conversation that was about something so very basic to drag on for that long shows to me that that institution has too much power yeah and it's not just i think it's been cultural power not just economic power as well and i think but i think the cultural power is is waning uh, yeah day by day i I actually think they're in quite a weak position for community organizations to to kind of push the agenda if they were kind of bold yeah we we can not talk about Trump. In fact, I think, you know, this has happened this week. Yeah. It's still going on. It's all a bit nuts, isn't it? I am alert on my phone for tweets. <laughs> like, I can see it in real time, the manifestation of whatever the hell is going on in his brain. It's quite amazing. His latest one is in capitals, one hour ago, just simply, we will win. I love the all caps. It's like, I mean, it's sort of fascinating. I'm sure there'll be lots of history books written about this Twitter meltdown mm. and you know the outcome of it that's still a little bit unknown but yeah it must be quite difficult if you've never had to admit that you're wrong or that yeah. you're not quite difficult to now have to concede on this massive scale must be there's quite a sizable difficult. amount of people though Even, you're more on Facebook than Twitter but in, in, in my sphere yeah. anyway um that do think it, it, it is voter fraud yeah. and they are the same people that don't they're slipping into the whole 5G, not wearing masks, yeah. COVID's a conspiracy, Trump. Yeah. It sort of fits into that category a bit. But it's far more mainstream. The, the whole conspiracy thing seemed to be quite left-field, you know, five, yeah. ten years ago. It's, it's not now, really, is it? Yeah. I, it's difficult because, again, it's just everyone's so polarised, isn't it? Like, it's not like yeah. Biden's won by a landslide. It's like, you know, it's pretty close, you know. And and there's still, you know, going to be 70-odd million people that are going to feel exactly. really yeah. massively yeah. wronged. and. I guess it's more about a case of, one, how we're going to get beyond this state where we're making these massive global decisions like Brexit and who the president of the United States is going to be on these sort of 2%, 4% margins. You know, it's like, it's crazy. I kind of think you must be asking the wrong questions or giving people the wrong options to choose from if it's that close. 
it's a multi-layered conversation that can go in many different directions. Yeah. But I do think that um, the, the, in order to yeah. make some kind of progress, there has to be some conciliation here, America, other places where there is some middle ground in this whole kind yeah. of tribal yeah. tribalness because otherwise it's not going to... Do you sometimes feel... I do, not because it's necessarily my beliefs, but I've got a foot in the world outside of the kind of liberal bubble yeah. in Bristol a little bit. Yeah. And I do feel that sometimes there is a bit of an echo chamber in Bristol politically. Yeah. Um, I don't, politically with a small p. Yeah. Um, and, and anyone who kind of sort of remotely even suggests, well, hang on a minute, there might be X or Y. It's mm. just kind of shut down and shamed and cancelled. And yeah. I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if it's a, Bristol's a bit of a microcosm of this in some regard. <laughs> I just think it just gets back to that thing about moral superiority. And I think, you know, we're all looking for some sort of like infallibility that doesn't exist within leadership. Mm -hmm. And I think, all right, you know, Trump might be an exception to the rule, but, you know, Obama made some bad decisions and Blair made some terrible decisions, but also Corbyn made some bad decisions. I don't know why it's so difficult to just acknowledge that as like leaders, you're going to probably make some bad decisions, but what is the Mm -hmm. kind of, bigger win that you're trying to get towards and how can everybody all collectively get behind that leadership even if it might not be their cup of tea in order to drive forward you know positive change for sure I think you're right no I agree I agree totally and we've tried to do this sort of throughout this series is is talking to different interesting people that maybe don't always fit into a particular box and maybe can kind of from a different perspective and yeah and I, I think it is related to Bristol and it hits a little bit upon the pylon thing because if you do you know put your position really clearly you people will kind of jump on you or or vice versa and actually I think political leaders stop listening because they get so much shit Mm. they they start to sort of lack the discernment to know what is some of the good stuff and what is the bad and that's a totally natural human response I think like Trump with the press for example because he gets criticized a couple of times you take to heart and then everything's fake news everything and I think that that actually there's lessons for all of us on that is that, that people get things wrong, as you say, mm. because they're human beings, but they also then might get something right. And you don't have to step out your team. Yeah. Isn't it? It's I'm team this or team that. I'm team Trump. Uh-huh. I'm team this. I'm team, uh-huh. I'm team George. I'm team Marvin. And actually mm. it's that mm. life is more nuanced. Politics is more nuanced. People are more yeah. nuanced. Absolutely. hundred percent. It reminds me a little bit of those, um, I don't know if you've ever been to the bath spa thing, you know, and they've got yeah, the yeah, purse yeah. tablets in there and people just like used to write these like horrible things about people who like nicked their coats and cursed them for all eternity. And I think Twitter yeah. is certainly becoming that. We just yeah. like want to curse our enemies all the time. But actually half the time, your enemies and you, you're all standing to lose exactly the same or gain yeah. the same from these different outcomes. Yeah. So, you know why that is, you think that. How old are you? How, do you mind, can I ask you how old you are now? How old am I? I'm 40. Yeah. What, what? yeah, you know why that is, don't you? You started off in the in rave days. I always go back to that. The, yeah. the rave <laughs> days were the political utopia of our times when you had all people with shapes and sizes exactly. and creeds all dancing to the euphoric beat That's what together. it is. That's what right? it is. And I think <laughs> that's where if we can all dance together in yeah. like some sort of global tribal yeah. federation, then the world will be a better place. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that's a lovely way to end, actually. Isn't it? Are you doing anything online at Trinity or are you, are you yeah, leaving it alone? Yeah, there's online stuff going on. We've got a few theatre performances and then we've got like an artist commission as well. So they're yeah. going to be putting some stuff out. If you ever need me, nobody knows this, anyone listen. Oh. I was a resident MC actually at Trinity back in the no, day. Yeah. when. The, what was your MC name? Uh, MC Vera. 
Okay. Empty Vera making it clearer, entering your mind, body, and soul. Is there any flyers kicking around from that? I could probably find There should be, yeah, there should be. I'll have a little look, see if I can find I promise I'll slip into a bit of it on the last episode of the series. (laughs) I definitely tune in for that. (laughs) Lovely. Nice one, Emma. Nice one. Cheers. Bye. Big thank you to Emma there. Interesting conversation for me. What I found fascinating about that was her honesty quite robust in her arguments but also clearly very passionate about grassroots community organizations and really trying to make sure that the city shares the love shares the focus shares the funding and drips down really to some of these real community grassroots centered organizations like trinity some people can be a bit cagey sometimes in these conversations and feel they have to kind of play a bit of a political game worried about you know funding and all that kind of stuff but I, I really you know I really appreciated her honesty um, but at the same time she came across with a lot of integrity and she's quite funny I really enjoyed that actually thank you for listening we are so proud of this show and honoured that thousands of you care so much about our city and tune in each episode do subscribe and if you want to we appreciate times are a bit tight at the moment Become a member of The Cable, chuck a quid in a month and keep us making the kind of in-depth reporting that's making our city better. Big thanks to our editor and audio producer, Rosa Eaton, our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, to The Cable members for allowing us to make this work. I'm Neil Mags, and this was Bristol Unpacked.